Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. We are always interested in our listeners' thoughts, comments, and feedback, so please do share these with us by dropping us an email at cinemarautism at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast and share our episodes far and wide. In today's episode, we welcome a special guest to the podcast. Natalie Marcus is a former student of Queen Mary University of London, where she studied English and Film. Natalie's choice today is the 2007 romantic comedy Lars and the Real Girl, directed by Craig Gillespie and starring Ryan Gosling. Joining Natalie for this discussion are our regular hosts, John James Laidlow, Georgia Bradburn, Janet Harbord and David Hartley. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, my name is David Hartley, and I am joined uh, once again by uh, John James Laidlow. Hello. Hi. Uh, Georgia Bradburn. Hello. And Janet Harbord. Hello. Hi, guys. Um, no Alex this week. We usually have Alex Whittleson with us, but I think he's away at a wedding, so that's very nice. Um, but we do have an extra special guest with us um, today. Um, we're delighted to be joined uh, by autistic former student of Queen Mary University who studied uh, English and film here at Queen Mary, Natalie Marcus. Welcome to the podcast, Natalie. Hello. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. Um, it's it's a it's a rarity that we have guests actually, and um, it's always really exciting when we do. So it's really nice to have to have you along. Uh, so Natalie has brought along a, a, a film uh, that she suggested for us to watch, um, and that film that we've watched is uh, Lars and the Real Girl, uh, which is a film that came out in two thousand and seven, I believe. I'm just trying to find my notes. Two thousand and seven. Um, and was directed by Craig Gillespie. Uh, so yeah, Lars and the Real Girl. So what it's customary to do at this point is that we generally tend to hand over to the person who suggested the film um, and then they give us a brief overview and introduction to the film and um, the reasoning as to why they chose it in the context of autism. So Natalie, if you're happy to do that, I'm going to pass over to you and um, take it away. Tell us all about Lars and the Real Girl. Okay, so the basic premise of, um, of um, Lars and the Real Girl is it's a sort of slightly eccentric guy who's clearly struggles socially, and um, he lives in the garage of his brother and his his brother's pregnant wife, and um, yeah, he's clearly from the start a bit unusual, a bit quiet and unsociable, and um, as the film progresses, he um, he turns up one night at their house with a a very realistic sex doll, which he seems to be thinking is real. And he talks about her 
as his girlfriend. And it's sort of, you can tell it's kind of set in an alternative world because obviously in that context, if you went to a therapist, they'd be trying to help you in terms of getting rid of this delusion. But the therapist in this kind of alternative world says to him or says to the brother, just let him indulge his fantasy, you know, get the town to get involved in it. Let him play it out and see why he's created this sort of relationship with a sex doll. And it's just a really lovely film, sort of, as it goes on, other people make relationships with this sort of inanimate woman. And he, it's quite clear he's using her to sort of try and get close or almost rerun having a relationship with somebody. Because he clearly, he's not crazy. He clearly knows she's not really real. But um, yeah, so he's sort of practising being in a relationship. And there's a woman at his office who is kind of definitely neurodiverse as well. And she's kind of obviously interested in him, but he's nervous of her and towards the end he sort of says goodbye to the sex doll and sort of starts getting more interested in her and I should say as well despite the fact it's a sex doll he doesn't it's not a sex thing he just uses her purely as like a woman and he's very very sweet with her so um why and how did this film speak to you from the perspective of autism Natalie so I first when you said it was released in 2007 I was trying to think when I first saw it so I probably first saw it about a decade ago And I very rarely sort of emotionally connect with films. And it's one of the only films I think I've ever cried at because he just, he was very, he just reminded me of me a lot in terms of, he just didn't like people touching him. He didn't like being around people too much. And the touch thing, really, there's a scene, particularly when he's with his therapist and she just tries to touch him and you can see visibly his whole body is um, not happy about it. And yeah, it was just, it was really nice and unusual to see something like that in film and how he explores it with, um, you know, having something inanimate. And it was just, it's very touching as well, the way the whole town, because the brother says at the beginning, like everyone will laugh at him, which is in reality, probably what would happen because that is often what happens to people who aren't particularly typical. And they don't, they just sort of embrace this, sex doll woman as if she's real and they really care about Lars so they're um yeah they're very much helping with it which was very touching as well and I think as well from sort of from the beginning of the film the sort of first scene has him kind of behind a glass in the garage and his um his sister-in-law comes out to sort of invite him for breakfast and he doesn't open the door so all you see is sort of her through this um misted glass and it's just yeah, it's quite a good analogy of autism, I suppose, because you are seeing things never quite clearly or never how you imagine other people are seeing things. So from the very beginning, it's kind of set up like, yeah, this guy is slightly separated from our world, which is, yeah, again, you don't see neurodiverse characters like that. And it's also quite now, I think it has more meaning to it because the guy who plays Lars is um, Ryan Gosling, who is now sort of, you know, Hollywood heartthrob and in this he's just a completely different character so yeah it makes it more kind of meaningful I think in a way that you know if you see him in other roles you just think oh well that's what he might be like if he was neurodiverse so yeah which kind of isn't directly in the film but it's kind of taken on that meaning for me in terms of like oh that's how different people can be just yeah with having different mindsets Thanks, Natalie. I think that's a really that's a really lovely introduction, and um, 
uh, yeah, really interesting insight into uh, into this particular film. It's I think it's particularly nice when a, a film connects with somebody in such a way, perhaps in in a way you didn't necessarily expect. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. So let's so let's open the floor up um, to everybody else. So we've all watched this film now, and um, yeah, I'd invite comments from the others uh, to see uh, to see what we made of of Lars and the Real Girl uh, in relation to to autism or just as a film in of itself yeah thanks for that natalie i and i i really um liked your comments about about him practicing relationships with this doll because that's absolutely how it feels that there was something about um sort of rehearsal in in this that felt very positive um and and also sort of quite risky. And when when you were just talking about the comedy there, about the the sort of the risk of laughing at or or sort of, of laughing with, I think that's set up really well in the film when the brother and his partner have a discussion with the doctor, and and the doctor says, you know, like the doc the the brother is at that point saying, you know, he's mad. How you know how how can we cope with this? Um, he he needs locking away, and that's sort of all of those um, really quite reactionary comments um about about his brother and this um and this new uh addition to their family effectively and uh and the doctor says well why not go with it um and you know um support him in this in this fantasy or delusion whatever you want to say about it and um and and the brother says but everyone's going to laugh at, uh, at him and the doctor just looks and then says and they're going to laugh at you um, and there's there's something in that moment that in itself it's funny and Patricia Clarkson's timing is quite brilliant um, but there's also something in that about that <clears throat> the way that the film then treads this quite you know I, difficult line yeah go on I feel like I'm interrupting but I don't know how to put my hand up and <laughs> no do yeah I was just going to say I think as well, it sort of says to the audience when she says everyone's going to laugh at him, it's like, because when you first see him sat on the sofa with this doll, you are sort of like, is this hilarious? What's going on? And it's almost like it's saying to the audience, like, don't laugh at him. Then you don't really, when he's talking to, she's called Bianca, and when he's talking to her and other people are talking to her, you're kind of like, no, this does seem like a, a character, you know, she's important to him and therefore, why would you laugh at him? It just seems unkind. And I think, yeah, it's almost like, the doctor's talking to the audience as well, which I quite like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, and and also sort of involving people in in that whole um, scenario in which there's a risk. You know, every, every pointing out that everyone's taking different risks. It's not just uh, Lars who's um, who who is visible in this scenario. So I, I I thought the figure of the doctor was really really interesting overall. Um, and also um, the fact that um, this doll allows for lots of connections, that she, Bianca, um, opens lots of possibilities and sort of changes people. So I liked that about the film. Yeah, and I think what it did show to me, which, again, because I only have my perspective, so I don't know how other people or neurotypical people see it, but to me, the way he spoke to it, it really kind of emphasised how artificial or I don't quite know how to say it, but when you're in a relationship, he seemed to be using cliche phrases from relationships a lot. Like he was like, how did you find it? How did it go? And if she wasn't, you know, an inanimate sex doll, 
you'd probably just be like, oh yeah, they're just talking because that's a relationship. And it really kind of highlights like, actually there's lots of formulas. There's a very, I can't think of the right phrase. Like it's very formulaic being in a relationship. There's lots of codes and signifiers that people use. And it really kind of highlights that I feel, which to me was quite nice because it's just like, it's a way of saying like, yeah, that kind of thing isn't easy to do. That isn't easy to do. And it, it makes it sound more artificial when he talks to her because he is kind of just playing this part because he didn't really, once he kind of starts talking to Margot, he's a lot more natural and he's not using kind of these sort of phrases and just cliche ways of being in a relationship. So I quite liked that because he just seemed to be play acting with her almost. I can't think of that many examples, but like, yeah, when they're at the party and he says like, and how did you find it? And are you okay? And it's just, you really notice like, oh yeah, they, they're all social things the way you do that. They're not natural. And yeah, it was good to sort of see that because it's, because films for me are for sort of sharing with people. And it was, I like watching it with friends and sort of saying like, yeah, you see that bit, that doesn't feel natural to me. Can you see that? And it's easier for people to see, you know, unnatural things that people are doing, which are so natural to neurotypical people. Yeah, it, it's very interesting what you're saying, because I mean, I mean, it was my first time watching it last night. And um, I mean, my dilemma when I'm watching things or I'm looking at something specifically through like I'm watching it in terms of like autism. Um, I look at kind of representation or character coding and I started watching this film and reading a lot of the um, descriptions saying, you know, this is a eccentric, socially awkward character, which usually is code in media for this character is neurodivergent or autistic, which is a problem in itself. And so I first went into it quite worried that this is going to be an autistic character with sort of all sorts of problematic kind of representations from that. But I think I mean, what you're saying, Natalie, is very important because it's not about it's not about autism and it's not about someone who is autistic, but it's about sort of emulating how it feels to be autistic in a world that is constructed around these social codes and sort of dating languages that don't really make much sense. Yeah, um, I completely agree. Yeah. 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 So I I'm really glad you said that because um, it, it sort of comes from a tradition of films I've never really sort of gone along with something like um for example there's this and say swiss army man they're, they're, they're like concepts that shouldn't really work uh, so people who don't know swiss army man is a film about a, a man who's about to commit suicide on a desert island but then finds a um flatulating corpse who he befriends and um he teaches him about life <laughs> um which it's just such it's like a concept for a heartwarming film that just does does not sound like it would work and reading sort of descriptions about this film about a man who has a relationship with a sex doll and people have to sort of um go along with it and accept it I I just thought no this is not going to work but it, it really does um and I think it's just because of the way that it makes you um feel for the character and and the people around him and like you say Natalie it, it sort of comes in a completely different universe where people are actually willing to go along with this if this were set in a hyper-realistic world um it, it doesn't really strike the same chords but I like the idea that um you know in this sort of universe this town there are people who really want to support this man and want to you know they don't want to judge him 
they want to um, let him have what makes him happy and um, yeah and I, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it that I hadn't really thought of so yeah thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah and I think as well it's um, you know bringing in sort of this inanimate woman it almost gives the neurotypical people a challenge in that they need to start interacting with her and they learn to sort of interact with somebody or an inanimate woman as well so it does kind of yeah it just feels comforting because it's just like yeah everybody struggles with some things socially and they're they struggle to come to terms with yeah talking to an inanimate woman but yeah it highlights to me like yes but that's life feel a lot of the time so it's it's very nice to think that neurotypical people will watch this film and think like oh not everybody does find things just simple and easy and like you said as well Georgia they don't actually say at any point and they don't really dwell on why he's like that they don't say well let's get him tested for autism let's define what's wrong with him they're just kind of like well how can we help him and if this will help him then let's go with it yeah um no i i i i would say that i i i enjoyed this film as well and i was sort of surprised by how much i enjoyed it because i i entered it with a similar amount of trepidation as the first time i watched it as well and you know the premise suggests that it's going to be something quite different um but i think they do well to to be gentle and careful actually with the premise and sort of move away from the idea of it being sex doll which is nice just when you say quite different do you mean because i think i hadn't read a premise of it before i saw it i just saw it do you think it was going to be funny as if you're laughing at him yeah i was partly worried about that i was partly worried that we were going to spend a lot of time laughing at him and there was that one moment when you do first see him sitting on the sofa with the with the sex with bianca and that i think is played for a kind of moment of humor because you get that (laughs) yeah it's quite funny and you get that cut where you see he's sitting there and she's sitting there and the two his um, brother and sister-in-law are looking very puzzled and that moment is a kind of yeah, and I, I found that funny, but I also slightly found it uncomfortable because I was a bit like, oh, I don't want to spend the rest of this film laughing at him for this situation. But what the film's clever enough to do is to is to to present that moment, but then not carry it forward and actually turn it around and say, no, y- yeah, there is something amusing about this, but also there's something important about it as well. And, and you need to, and, and yeah, it does well to sort of help us to connect with Lars and and Bianca, and it's and it's partly to do with Ryan Gosling's performance in a way, actually, and, and the way he's really careful about um, not pl- not sending himself up or not playing a, a kind of clownish role. He's he does he's really actually pretty good, I think, at doing a, a, a really embodying Lars and under you know he's got all of these kinds of. Um, movements that he does with his face so he squeezes his eyes shut quite a lot and um, you know and he, his, his speech is a, sometimes a little broken he sort of stops himself from speaking at times and he's a little bit frustrated and you can see the tension within him and I think that's actually quite a good performance on Ryan Gosling's part and when he's actually talking to Bianca you know he's leaning into her and whispering to her and it and it, it so it sort of it, it saves itself from becoming too much of a, a knockabout comedy that some that I would have felt quite uncomfortable watching, and in the end, I did sort of feel like it was it was nicely handled. My only slight concern about this film um, is that, and it's kind of like in a weird kind of way, what I like about the film and what I don't like about the film are basically almost the sort of same the same thing in a contradictory kind of way. I like that you get this 
unusual situation where the idea of the social is sort of turned on its head a little bit and the whole neighborhood have to sort of gather together and believe in Bianca and that that is sustained all the way through. I like that because it redefines what we think about as being so the social the sociality you know it makes us think yeah people can have connections with objects and things and that does tend to happen with autistic people and that's absolutely fine and that works well and it's healthy and it's um useful but then on the flip side of that i by the end i was sort of thinking but there is something about this film which is also a little bit of a kind of neurotypical fantasy about that situation where i feel as if neurotypicals think that some neurotypicals think that if they were in a situation where they have a, an autistic member of the community who acts in a bit of an eccentric and unusual way, that everyone would rally around together and be cozy and nice and friendly and gentle. Whereas in reality, I don't think that that actually happens. And 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 I was slightly worried that it went slightly too far with that fantasy in a way, and slightly worried that actually the what actually tends to happen in situations like this is that people get bullied they get ostracized they get sectioned they get you know and and i sort of thought particularly in regards to a couple of the characters like the, the workmates of the brother who were these kind of more blokey bloke type guys and i sort of thought would they really go along with this or would they be sniggering behind his back constantly and i, I was a little bit worried that it was it went too far into that fantasy side of things i think what i really liked about the brother's friends is your obvious well because i definitely thought like well they're going to bully him they're going to bully him and because it, I think it's very clear it's not set in our world. It is kind of, it's kind of in this almost like ethereal little town. It's not reality. And I liked it because people who might be inclined to laugh at him and just make fun of him, the fact they don't, I feel it makes, if you were going to laugh at him as an audience member, it kind of makes you feel bad because they're just like, well, actually, let's just be kind to him. And I think that's quite clever because you don't really feel sorry for Lars. It makes, well, I'd hope somebody who would be inclined to laugh at somebody like Lars realise like, oh, being nice is just so much better. Why, why don't you just be kind? So I think, I don't think that's a weakness of the film. I think it's kind of, I really like that nobody sort of bullies him because it shows the audience like, well, actually everybody's capable of just opening their mind and thinking like, well, yeah, how can we help him? And, what is actually wrong with it? And also, he's just not, like you say, because Ryan Gosling is so good at playing this sort of character, he's really sweet, he's really polite, you know, he isn't out to hurt or, you know, damage anybody. You don't want to laugh at him because he's just such a, this lovely, sweet guy. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. It is a, a film that promotes kindness, which I think is nice and a, it's a, a rarity, I think, within film. Um, go on, John. So I can sort of see um, it from both sides. Like it, it very clearly is a fantasy world. And it, although the films are very different, I'm not comparing the films. It kind of reminded me of Sia's music that we dis discussed previously on a previous episode. Like, obviously, that's a horrific uh, film but there's there was kind of this this fantasy that all the people around music would would rally around her like they they guided her through her um through her daily walk and they all looked out for her it is kind it is kind of like that in that town but also you know 
the the film is almost like some sort of like social experiment like it, it's completely it feels completely self-contained um and Bianca doesn't she isn't just a way for Lars to explore his feelings it's like for the whole town to to really explore what what relationships mean and, and, and what they mean to each other and how they can you know rally around each other um so I don't know it's kind of like um there's two sides to it for me like it is really nice to see that and it's a really interesting concept um you know Bianca challenging all these social and relationship norms um but also it's a bit yeah it is it is it is a fantasy you know especially with the the doctor who's also a psychologist um not the psychologists aren't doctors but she's a she's a gp basically yeah she's um, conveniently yeah. a family yeah. doctor and a psychologist as well and um you know the way the way she um the way she really explores this delusion and what it means for Lars you know it, it is it's actually quite helpful I, I do think she if it was in the real world she did take it a bit too far but I mean most most psychologists wouldn't wouldn't even entertain the the idea of of exploring what a delusion means they would be like reality checking you know um not feeding into that for fear of pathologizing so yeah and i think i think the idea of it the idea of this fantasy world does sort of fit with the the aesthetic and like the music choices of the film like it feels it does feel kind of like some sort of middle america suburban dream world in a way yeah I think as well with the sort of the way she approaches it, it's interesting because I often think there's nothing wrong with being autistic. And actually it's in um, a curious instant, actually, where he says, if everybody was like me, I don't know if you if you know that book, it's just about a autistic boy and it's narrated by him. He said, if everybody was like me, you know, the world would be so much more productive and there wouldn't be so many problems. And I often think, yeah, it's it's not a problem being autistic. The problem is living in a world that isn't autistic. So I really like that she's not immediately like, right, well, we need to fix him because that isn't the case. He just needs to express himself somehow. And that's how he's chosen to express himself through Bianca. And yeah, I thought there was, I mean, it's it's obviously reading another level into it and they could have maybe made that more explicit. But yeah, I really liked that, that she wasn't, the doctor wasn't looking to fix him. She was just happy to listen to him and, try an unconventional way to help him basically rather than just saying like no you must go out with a normal girl and you must conform to social to society so that was again it's just a kind thing to do when it's more open-minded thing to do than just say yeah that's what's wrong with him and again I like that even though there are clearly signs that he is autistic you know he's you know, he gets upset when the man in the office next to him plays loud music. You can see he's sort of visibly upset by it and and touch. He doesn't like. There's another thing as well he didn't, which was typically autistic. I can't remember. But yeah, so it signifies that he's autistic, but it never says it. And it's not, she doesn't say, oh, well, you know, let's do some tests and see what's wrong with him. So yeah, I really like that about it. And also, I feel like I'm going on a bit. 
But um, the character of Margot, she's not neurotypical. And I have a whole thing about this, which is going off the point, but a lot less girls are diagnosed with autism. And there's a lot around why that is. You know, is it because girls cope better? Is it because they're more ignored? Is it something to do with the Y chromosome? Because it's, you know, ADHD, dyslexia, so many things affect, you know, nearly five or 10 times as many boys. So it's nice in a film to see, even though she is kind of a side character. Yeah, it was nice to see a woman that clearly is not neurotypical. Yeah, it's funny you mention um, The Curious Incident because that was what made me realise I was autistic when I read that um, when I was about 12 or 13. Um, And it's exactly what you were saying about it that I think resonates in this film about how it sort of highlights how um, like neurodivergence isn't really the, the problem. Um, I find it a difficult balance sometimes to find, you know, what a, what is it about autism that is inherently difficult and that makes us struggle? And a lot of that comes down to sensory issues or issues with um, uh, regulating emotions that are always going to be difficult no matter what society you put us in or what, where you go. And then what part of it is something that, is is about the world not being accessible and about rules of communication and um yeah rules <laughs> of communication just being completely inaccessible um and yeah like we said about this film not really being very realistic and i'm like that i like that it didn't make too much of an effort to go you know oh this this could really happen this could happen in a town near you because you know, in the world that we live in currently, unfortunately, people aren't really that open-minded. Um, but I feel like this film opens up that possibility um, with just one kind of factor that's thrown in and makes you rethink your relationship with your friends, your neighbours, the people that you live with. Um, um, I think it's an interesting experiment because, yeah, it, the world really is made up of these quite restrictive rules that are just... For us as autistic people, it makes it 10 times more difficult to just kind of exist and feel like we're on the same wavelength as other people. It's so difficult to um, maintain those those relationships and feel like you are understanding someone because there are so many barriers in the way. And what this film does successfully is sort of try to break those down. Yeah, I completely agree. And back to my point, like I said, it's one of the only films that's ever made me cry. And I think the reason it made me cry is because it was just so... When he's with the doctor and he's she's touching him and he says, this is how it feels, it feels painful. I just felt that's how I feel so much of the time. And it was just so moving and nice to see this character who's sympathetically portrayed and just in this gentle little town who's struggling with something that I struggle with that you just never see in film, really. And it's even highlighted from the beginning you know, he's in his garage and she goes back to this warm, cosy bed. They're really, you know, not sexually, but they, she gets back into bed with him and she's touching his face, yeah, her husband. And it just really highlights how natural touch is for most people. And I just thought it was a really sympathetic portrayal of like, yeah, it's difficult for some people. He's really, Ryan Gosling is really good at sort of making it feel painful, which is what it can feel like. So, yeah, I think, well, like you said, Georgia, there are things that we couldn't overcome in terms of noise and sensory experience. But the idea of 
yeah, everybody kind of, I mean, this is kind of off the, off the point and a bit of a rant, but, you know, this thing came in when I was in high school of just, you hug everybody. What, why is that a thing now? And it's just, and when, particularly when I speak to my parents about things like that, they'd just be like, well, it just is, that's just how it is. And it's like, but why? And all these things that go on in relationships where it's like, oh no, well, he, he said that, but really he was probably annoyed and things like that. It's just, oh, it's just, it's a minefield sort of working out all these invisible things that yeah don't really exist but apparently they're really important so yeah yeah and again there was another that was a sort of another moment in the film where i got slightly worried when the when the doctor um dagmar the name of the doctor uh she starts to do the the testing where she's sort of touching him um and you know and she she sort of he's he's had his talk about how the fact that he doesn't like hugging and he doesn't like being touched and it feels painful he has that really interesting uh line where he talks about he sort of describes how um touching you know being touched for him feels like when you put your feet in snow and they go freezing cold and then they come you come back inside and they thaw out and the, the pain and that process is what touching feels like for him um and i started getting slightly worried that this doctor then starts touching him and she starts like gently touching his arm and then she puts all of her fingers on his arm and then she grips his arm and then she touches the side of the face and he reacts um you know really strongly and i started to think oh no don't 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 start doing this because this suddenly is almost feeling like you're going to keep doing this to sort of torture him into accepting touch as a as a as a as a thing that he needs to and get involved with but it never really pushes it past that point actually and i feel like the doctor understands that it's painful for him and therefore doesn't doesn't push that line of trying to sort of make him adjust his his own feelings towards touch towards everyone else you do then get a scene later on where he's gone he's gone out with um Margot, who's the yeah, as you say, the the girl from the the, the woman from his office, from his workplace, who he has a, a romantic interest in, and uh, they go out bowling, and then at the end they have like a handshake, and he shakes her hand, not using his gloves. So there's there's a moment there of touch, and she sort of slightly strokes his palm. So there's this suggestion, yeah, that he is like moving towards a position where he's able to to touch people and be touched by people, but then what I liked about the film is that you never got this moment where he's going, like he's in this massive big embrace with Margot or with any, or with the doctor or with his brother or something, you know, the the film's smart enough to recognize that he wouldn't go that far with it, that he might learn a little bit about how to maybe touch people on the hand and, and, and so on, but that he's, you know, there isn't this magical moment where he's suddenly now hugging everyone. And I think that's a really, that was a really important um, decision to make because then you don't get this this narrative of like you know oh we should we should force autistic people who don't like hugging to to get involved with hugging because that's the normal way of doing things actually what we should be doing is thinking you know not everybody likes to be hugged not everyone likes to be touched and that's absolutely fine we shouldn't be hugging and touching people who don't like to be t- hugged and touched and i get i i feel as if that's the conclusion that the writer and the director got to in the end and i liked that there wasn't a kind of epiphany moment of hugging at the end yeah I really like that interpretation that you're saying and yeah he does sort of gently touch Margot at the end but yeah like you say they don't have a Hollywood kiss or go to bed together or something and it is the message kind of there to me is like and that's fine you know they're they're not going to have potentially a really physical relationship 
or it will take them a lot longer than a, a film has time to explore that. So yeah, I really liked that. And just, yeah, like you said, the just acceptance that yeah, not everybody is the same. And particularly in a film where so many things are just so formulaic. And it's, because for me, definitely growing up, watching films and even other people, it's just, this is how you should be. This is how people are. And yet yeah, have a film that's like, well, actually, no, some people are perfectly nice and can get on and can be happy, but they're just not like everybody else. And that's fine. So, yeah, it's a very, very positive film for me. And I think it's a, it's an interesting discussion that we're having about what when um, you know to what to what extent we find this kind of sympathetic representation of an autistic character sort of too saccharine, too too positive, too sweet, too idealistic. And I think I think for me that there are some elements of that. It's a little bit in the genre of of things like the Truman Show, you know, I think, John James, you were talking about that sort of Midwest and middle of America, sort of, you can't quite work out when or where it is. That was another thing in this film. I kept thinking, what year is it? You know, the computers seem really old and yet one of the parents hadn't died till 2003. It was sort of the references were were, were, were quite eclectic like that. Um, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe, I guess probably really, um, you know, quite in quite a deliberate way. Um, so you couldn't quite identify where, where and when it was. And, and that might be part of it being a fantasy that we're being represented with something like, you know, a suspension of our, our belief in, in this world in some ways. But I, but I thought what, what the film did really well was give us the difficult feelings of the people around Lars. So it was it showed you um, the people struggling with their feelings, people having bad feelings potentially the brother, you know, people in the workplace who, who, who had to kind of deal with what they were feeling. And, and I thought it was really interesting in that, in that respect, that it didn't, um, it didn't kind of gloss over everything that so everyone was just like, like going, Oh yeah, you know, let's just shuck and jive with this. Um, you did get a sense of, of, of embarrassment, social awkwardness. You know, we were told that an email had, thanks for the email, the round robin that went round before Lars turns up at the Christmas party. Um, there is some of this sense of like people being prepared for it, um, for, for, for Lars having this relationship, bringing this sex doll in. Um, so, so I thought there was some of that in, in the film that gave you quite a complex reading of, um, of, of the range of feelings that he, he provokes. But I, I wanted, to, wanted to have a sort of raise something around gender and sexuality in this, because there's, there's also something interesting about the dolls, isn't there, that, about Bianca. She is a sex, a sex doll, but he doesn't use her for that. And that's quite noticeable. And I think that isn't presented as um, as a lack on his behalf, but on this sort of time, it, it, it seemed to me that he had a lot of integrity compared to other characters that are like, oh, you know, let's lift her skirt and have a look at what's under there. Or let's, you know, and, and we know the sort of the typical uh, attitudes to a, a sex doll that sort of reproduce some of the attitudes towards women that are misogynistic and so forth in the culture. Um, and quite often around, you know, in the contemporary moment in the West, you know, also having a geopolitical dimension towards 
Eastern Europe, sex workers, those sorts of ideas. And there was some, although Bianca's called Bianca, which is Italian, you know, there was a way in which she was dressed that had that, sort of, for me, had those connotations of sort of Eastern European sex worker that we usually get shorthand for in, in, in films. So I thought, I thought that the, I thought that the, that there was something interesting going on around that, that she's this sex sex doll is brought in and yet she's given different clothes, she's given a range of different outfits, she's treated very differently. And everyone is taking Lars's lead on that. You know, it's him, it's his treatment of her, it's his respect for her. Um, and so, you know, some, something else comes in in that bowling scene as well that's around gender for me, where, where um, his, uh, the woman that he meets in the office, I can't remember her name right now. Um, she, she's very Margo. good at bowling. Margot, thank you. She's very good at bowling and, and Lars isn't. And there's there's a whole sort of set of different negotiations that are happening on that on that scene. Um just just before you brought that point point up, I'd I'd made a note here to talk about the film's sort of exploration and, and depiction of masculinity. Because um I mean a lot there's kind of like this assumption of what masculinity means in the film at the start. Um, you know, there's that uh, Lars's brother assumes that Bianca is some sort of fetish or, or, or you know, perversion. He he goes on the website and we see see all the introductionary vid- videos and um his dad, his dad we we're told that his dad kind of fell apart after his mum died and didn't really talk about his feelings and was distant. That the the brother hasn't really emotionally bonded with Lars or or you know looked out for him in a way that he feels guilty about. Um, and also there's that the 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 other colleague who collects action figures at, at the office. I sort of read him as potentially neuro neurodivergent as well. Um, and he's kind of you know he's mean to Margot. And through the film, through, through through what I guess we as a society would assume is is a sex object, and the film certainly starts off by assuming she's a sex object. But through this, through Bianca, Lars sort of finds a more gentle and tender masculinity, and um, more in more more individual. Uh, relationship to masculinity he's not and and I guess he kind of challenges that for other people as well in the film yeah I think I don't I'd not really think thought about it in terms of like yeah how masculinity is represented but it's interesting because he when he's sat on the stairs asking his brother you know what it is to be a, a man and stuff his brother's a bit stumped and sort of says some you know vague cliches and it's interesting to me like Lars is far more of a man and um, far more how men should be. And when he repeats sort of what he, exactly what his brother said, I think it's to Margot, it sort of sounds crass and silly. And it's interesting that, you know, this kind of character that finds it so hard to connect with people seems to have a better idea of how you should treat people and what it means to be a good, well, not even a good man, but a good person by, yeah, the way he approaches and treats Bianca. And as well to um, what you were saying, Janet, about um, how the other characters are sort of like, probably titillated is not the right word, but um, how they're kind of like, well, what's Bianca like? You know, is she, is she, you know, actually a sex doll? 
the first person to sort of look and be interested in that is a woman. It's the the um his sister-in-law. You know, she has a look and then she's talking to the girls about it. So it doesn't represent it as just like, you know, only men are looking at this sex doll as a sex thing. The women are sort of, you know, laughing and chatting about it as well, which is interesting because, yeah, often in films you see just men being interested in the sexual side of life and, you know, sex is for them. But, yeah, in this one, the you know, she's also interested to see and sort of, yeah, they're very aware of it as well. I mean, of course, in the real world, women are aware of sex and stuff, but in films, it's more, you know, the male gaze and the male pleasure. So that was quite interesting as well. Yeah, I'd say probably for like the first 30 to 40 minutes of the film, I, I'll be honest, I really wasn't sure about it just because the whole concept of um, um, like a man uh, using like a sex doll to have a relationship with um kind of bothered me a bit because and this is quite a very surface level reading I suppose but from a feminist perspective I sort of saw it as you know this is a woman who cannot say anything back to you and you know is an, an inanimate object you know and in, in a lot of traditional patriarchal ideas that is you know the perfect woman who can't you know say anything and that bothered me because I was like okay is this is this the ideal then but um what I what I did like about the film as it went on is and and it is on along the same lines of what we've talked about as sort of him kind of learning how to treat someone in a relationship and how to be in a relationship and learning and deconstructing these codes is that you know he does make a lot of mistakes with Bianca and he does um, you know he shouts at her when she wants to do other things or when she you know when the other people in the community take her out and do things with her and he becomes very possessive and. Um, there's a moment where Karen, uh, his sister-in-law, just shouts at him saying, you know, um, I can't remember exactly what she says, but she's angry because he's not letting his girlfriend or, or this um, sex doll kind of be independent and, and spend time with other people. And she questions, she directly questions his possessiveness over her. And I think he learns something from that at going into his next relationship with Margot. And it stopped made me think, you know, what if people would practice um, more often with these things rather than unleashing these kind of behaviours on actual women? Because I think that's such a, a huge problem of um, expecting um, certain things from women or from, from a partner and then um, having to learn by, by hurting them and abusing them. And so in a way I thought, you know, this is quite an interesting way of overcoming that, you know, lesson. Um, and I'm really glad that it took me on that sort of um, series of ideas because, like I said at the start, I really wasn't sure about it at all. But, um, yeah, everything you've said about gender and, and masculinity um, was things that I was really thinking about. But the good thing about the film is it doesn't stick with the same kind of cliche things. It does actively make you question it, as everyone else in the film is doing. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I hadn't sort of, in my idealisation of Lars, I'd sort of forgotten that bit where, yeah, he comes back and he's like, oh, I shouldn't need to look at a schedule to spend time with my girlfriend. And she should, you know, he's basically saying she should be sat waiting for me. And the sort of older lady in the community sort of really tells him off and says, you know, 
look, she's got a life, she's got things to do. We'll be back later, you have to deal with that. And yeah, it was, and you, you sort of aren't laughing, even though this is a sex doll, the woman's just strapped into the car. It is a real comment on, yeah, how women are treated. And even though before she, yeah, she is just a silent, inanimate object, but they are, yeah, everybody's learning through her sort of how to be nicer. And it is interesting, yeah, it's kind of after that that he decides, you know, that Bianca is sick and that she's going to die. But the reason isn't because she's become more independent. It's because he's realising, actually, maybe I can make a go of a real relationship. So he's sort of, yeah, he's learnt things from her and he wants to let her go, not because she's become too much of a real person, but because now he wants a real person and he sort of more understands what that'd be like. Curious to think in a way that he actually kills her. I mean, it's it's a strange way of putting it, but like that he does kill her. <laughs> he does kill her, doesn't he? Like he decides he's making this decision that he's moving towards Margot. Let's say in in his mind, he's, he's clear that he's like he's he's recognizing Margot as a as a potential um, romantic interest. Uh, finally, or I think he always has that thought in his head, but he's not. But that his experience with Bianca is is helping him to. Um, to to realize that a bit more a bit more clearly, um, and yeah, and then he ends up actually deciding that Bianca is ill, and then deciding that she's so ill that she's dying, and then she dies, and then they hold a funeral for her, and then he buries her, and it's and it's curious to think, although it's all handled very gently, it is curious to think that he has made that those choices, and he's effectively murdered this this woman, and, um, and you know gone through that you know in the most gentle way you could possibly imagine, and has gone through that whole process. But yeah, I think that's a really important point, Georgia, about that um, about about the, the, the potential issue there about you know control over the over the woman and the fact that she is this um, almost there are suggestions early on about her being the ideal woman i think it's one of the um one of his brother's workmates at one point sort of makes a quip about it where he says you know oh i wish wish my woman was like that or whatever you know i wish you know i wish i had a woman who didn't talk back or, or whatever it is and there's something there's a little strain there's a line all the way through there that's a bit like oh yeah that's a that's a problem but again it's one of those things that the film and the, the, I think it's testament to the to the script, really. Um, written it's written, it was written by Nancy Nancy Oliver, and she got a. Um, I noted here that she got an uh, an Oscar nomination actually for this uh, for the best original screenplay, and I think it's testament to that script that 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 is handled well. It's sort of noted, but then handled gently through the through the film, so that yeah, it does turn around, and then you do start to think about oh no, actually this is this can be sometimes the way that women are treated by men and that men do need to learn if they're this way inclined, need to learn these lessons about control and so on. So it's an interesting, yeah, interesting little almost parable process, I guess, in a way um, that could so easily have gone in a, in a different direction that might've been quite uncomfortable, I suppose. Um, as we've been discussing this, I've kind of been thinking of, of sort of a slightly different reading because I mean I wonder if if Lars ever like does Lars ever truly believe that Bianca's real because perhaps he's just using Bianca as kind of like a mirror to everyone around him to say look at the absurdity so then he's not yeah I don't know maybe like 
because it just it feels a bit weird that he kills her um and so yeah i don't know like and there's points in the film where his brother there's a bit where his brother says she's plastic or something and and he just kind of completely ignores it and the bit where he decides that the treatments for her blood pressure aren't working it feels a bit convenient that it's when he's decided that he um he's he's he is definitely interested in margot and wants to pursue that so i, I don't know maybe I guess it's up for debate how much he 100% believes that Bianca is is a real flesh and blood person. I don't know, just a thought. I think it's a rather another sign that, you know, Lars, if we were to do a test on him, he would be autistic. It's because when he repeats that line, you know, you don't cheat on your woman if you're a good man. I think he takes that very literally and he's like, I cannot pursue a relationship with Margot until I'm free of Bianca. So I think, I mean, this might be an overreading, but it's kind of like, it shows, you know, rules like not that you should cheat on your woman, but it kind of shows how, I don't know quite how to say, because I don't want to say his brother's insensitive, but the fact his brother just says that to him quite bluntly, it's like, obviously Lars isn't a typical person. And to just say something quite, you know, generic like that. It's sort of, yeah, he does kill off Bianca, but it is because of he takes his brother's advice and he's like, oh, you can't cheat on your woman. So I think if he'd said something, you know, more understanding and gentle and nuanced, Lars probably wouldn't have to take that, you know, dramatic, painful act of sort of completely killing her off because, of course, she's not a real woman and he could have kept her and had a relationship with her you know got her out the cupboard for practice at times if he wanted to but yeah it was very like no you cannot have two people in your life so you need to get rid of her and that might be an overreading, but I do remember thinking like yeah that was a bit of a stupid thing for the brother to say because even though you know he doesn't know he's autistic it's yeah talk to people a bit more in a more nuanced fashion would have been helpful than just saying you know generic phrases I think I totally understand what you're saying, John James, because I was having this uh, similar thoughts as well. And one of the things I'd, I'd one of the thoughts I'd had early on in the film, because you don't get a, an enormous amount of information about Lars in the first sort of twenty minutes of the film, so you're not hundred percent sure what, where he's coming from entirely. So when the sex doll is introduced, I started to think, is he playing a game here with the community? Right? Is he? Is he? Is he sort of? being a trickster a little bit and he's going oh well let's see how far along they go with this then if i if i keep you know i maintain this this little, little fantasy and see how they react to that so uh, there were points at which i thought early on where i thought he was going to crack or he was going to sort of reveal that he almost constructed this and is playing this and actually that doesn't happen but i think that that you're right i think all the way through I kept saying to myself, no, he knows that this is this is the sex doll. He knows that she's not real. I don't think it's a delusion. Like they keep saying it's a delusion. Um the the brother keeps saying it's a delusion. The 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 doctor, Dagmar, she says it's a delusion. Everybody else seems to think it's a delusion. But that doesn't seem necessarily to be the case. I don't actually think he's deluded. Um because I think he's he's playing through a narrative that he is absolutely resolutely 
attached to, which I think is slightly different than being fully, completely deluded. Um, and so there's a sort of thought the way through that I feel like he does know what he's doing, or I, do, I feel like he does know what the process is. But but that process is so important. That narrative and that story process is so important to him um, that he does cherish Bianca as if she was real. And and then you know the the result of that is that quite a few of the neurotypical characters end up doing the same. And there is a lovely moment for me. The brother was a really interesting character because they 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 have a kind of slightly frosty relationship at the beginning. Really, they don't really necessarily quite get on. It doesn't look as if the brother really understands Lars or hasn't really ever understood Lars. Um, but then later on, there is a moment where the brother. Um, so the Bianca is sort of sleeps in inverted commas in a room in the house with the brother and the sister-in-law. And it's the brother's um, role, his job to sort of put her to bed every night in a way. And there's a moment where you get a, a slight scene, a short, very short moment where Lars is not involved. Lars is in his garage and the brother is sort of turning lights off in the house. And then he opens the door and checks on Bianca. And this is before she gets like ill and before any of this happens. He sort of looks at her and sort of sort of checks himself a little bit and goes, why am I doing this? But it, it's clear that he's something, this whole process has made him also care about Bianca in a way. And, and I thought it was a nice little gentle moment where it's like, okay, he's beginning to understand, as are we, as are the rest of the sort of neurotypicals in the film, are beginning to understand the importance of believing in Bianca I guess and I thought it was quite a, a gentle and nice moment that made me smile a little bit yeah I think again there's another moment like that when um Lars is in bed with Bianca after their fight and um his brother obviously doesn't realize he's in there and he comes in and he's sort of taken aback to see Lars there and it is as if his brother's come in because he's like oh well yeah I'm putting Bianca to bed and he has a glass of water in his hand and it just seems very probable that that, that might be for Bianca it's just, yeah, she very much becomes a real figure. And I think, yeah, it's the brother's acceptance of her is kind of letting down his guard and letting go of what he thinks maybe masculinity is as well to sort of say like, well, hang on, actually, can I engage with this thing with my brother? And as well, he clearly has his sort of feelings to Lars that are kind of frosty at the beginning, I think very much sort of bound up with the idea that he feels so guilty that he left as soon as he could because he says to Lars later, like, um, you know, I'm sorry I left. I, you know, I shouldn't have left you with, you know, a, de a depressed dad and a dead mum. So that, that was quite a nice moment. And as well, Lars's sort of response to that is very sweet. He just sort of says, you know, no problem. Or it's, a, I can't remember exactly what he says. He either says, like, no problem or that's okay, which is a, just a very sweet response because he's just like, I forgive you. And it's sort of, yeah, he doesn't make any more issue or discussion of it he's just like yeah it's a nice simple acceptance of an apology that is actually a huge thing that probably affected Lars's whole life well it's interesting you say that because I, I was just about to ask about the backstory that we have for the brothers um which you've just sketched there Natalie about the the mother died and the mother died in in labor with him is is the backstory isn't it and um I, I mean, I, I think there's also a reading that Lars's relationship with the doll is, uh, particularly the doll's dying, is a reenactment of that moment that um, that the doll is also a working through psychoanalytically for him of um, of the loss of of the mother and, and and 
you know, the incredible difficulty of um, being born at a moment when your mother has died, those, those two events being inextricable. Um, and I also thought that that raised uh, a, a question of, of his autism. You know, are, is the film suggesting that the autism is sort of event-based, that that event was part of producing who he is autistically, um, and what, yeah, just what other people made of that. Well, I think sort of with anybody's diagnosis of autism or the way autism manifests in you, it's exactly the same as how anybody is. You know, you can be born with propensities for all different things, but depending on how you're treated, it will manifest in different ways. So I think it's very hard to because I often think about myself, I'm like, you know, what's autism and what's environmental and what's this and what's that? And it's like, well, it's all part of the same person. So whether he was born with autism or not, it's, or no, let's say he is born with autism. He might have been a completely different person and made more sociable, be more comfortable with touch. Had his mom, mother survived and she'd been a very gentle, you know, touching woman. And his dad was obviously had depression. So, um, yeah, if his dad wasn't the way he was as well, he could have been a completely different person, but equally he could have been exactly the same. It's just, it's to do with, yeah, how you interact with the world. I haven't quite said what I wanted to there. I'm not quite sure what I was trying to say. But yeah, I think, yeah, I think what I was trying to say, yeah, is autism is manifest. It's mixed up with how you're brought up and your experiences of life. It's not oh, he doesn't like touch because he is autistic. It's because, yes, he is autistic and these are the experiences he's had in life. So that's how it manifests itself, if that makes sense. Um, I remember seeing someone online discuss how because of the, the world we live in, we don't, so far, we don't really know what it is like to be autistic and not not be traumatized in some way because because of the way we're treated at school by society etc which is really sad but obviously but um I don't know how much worth there is in trying to pick apart what what is autism what is trauma in, in yourself like personally like I kind of see it as kind of like um a bit cliche to use this symbol but a fidget spinner so each each point it's kind of like a different aspect and, and when it spins you can't really tell which bit is which it just makes up the whole thing um that's how I see it personally like because because a lot of things overlap but I did when when they mentioned the mum dying in childbirth giving birth to Lars it did kind of make me think of the refrigerator mother theory I kind of thought you know oh is that are they trying to say that is why Lars is the way he is because he didn't have an affectionate mother or a mother at all. And so it, it, it did have echoes of that to me as well. Yeah. I think I'd say though, refrigerated mother and a dead mother, I saw of very different things, I suppose. I don't, yeah, I don't really have anything more to say on that. I just think they're, they're very different because there's so much blame put on a refrigerator mother that you can't really put blame on a dead person so yeah I completely get your point but yeah 
I just think the phrase for refrigeration mother makes not because you've used it, but just yeah, all the connotations of it, you know, having to be a woman's fault and blah blah blah, mm. make me angry. So, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think the film is trying to imply that. I think it's just yeah, but like I said, it probably did have a big effect on him, but it that doesn't mean he's the way he is because of that or because of the autism. Like you say, I've yeah, I've realised it's pointless to say you know, I don't like that or, you know, I need things separate because of autism. It's like, it's, yeah, it's just all a bundle of who I am. I think it get, I think it just about gets away with it. And I, I was similarly, I was kind of worried that, that, that they were sort of pinning the parents dying, the distant father, the, the, the dead mother as, yeah, th- this is the reason why Lars is how he is. Um, and it seems to be that the brother believes that as well to a certain extent. But actually, I think it just about gets away with it because I think it doesn't make that distinct, you know, direct link between him not like being touched and the the tragedies of his parents. What actually it sort of feels like to me is that, yeah, he's an autistic guy who this situation has happened to him with these with his parents. And that's a that's a perfectly natural thing that would happen. That's a that's that's the logic of the universe that's the role of the dice i mean it, that's going to happen to some autistic individuals in the world and yeah it will affect him in a in a social way it will affect him in different ways um and i think what you were trying to say before natalie about the fact that yeah you can be you can be born autistic but still also influenced by social events that ex- exacerbate or exaggerate or just divert your autistic way of being into various channels um, and I think the film just about gets away with doing that. I do think this, like, this sort of dead parents thing was slightly trying to shoehorn in a kind of reason for Lars, but I, I felt as if they shied away from it in a in a way that was um, useful and um, and and careful. So I think they they just about got away with that. Um, and they make it more about the kind of relationship between the brothers, which I think is which is I think is the better sort of angle to go with there. Right. I'm very conscious of the fact that we've been talking for over an hour, I think now. Um, but uh, so I'm going to draw things to a conclusion. Uh, so thank you very much, first of all, to uh, Janet, John James and Georgia for your contributions as ever. But an extra special thank you to Natalie um, for joining us uh, and for suggesting this film, Lars and the Real Girl. Um, we've had a lot to talk about. So um, it's been a really wonderful choice. And it's certainly a film I think I'm going to keep thinking about and keep pondering which is not something i necessarily expected when i sat down to watch it um so thank you very much and uh yeah um we hope all the listeners have been enjoying this episode and we will be we'll be back in a couple of weeks time with a new episode so thank you everyone and goodbye you have been listening to the autism through cinema podcast hosted by john james laidlow alex widowson janet harbord and david hartley Extra thanks to our special guest for this episode, the wonderful Natalie Marcus. Thanks also to Leverett Jakes for supporting us with their superior editing skills. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. 
If you'd like to contribute to the discussion of the films that we talk about, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at cinemaautism at gmail.com. And that's cinemaautism with a shared A in the middle of the word. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another exploration of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now. Thank you.